Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly podcast that takes a look at everything that's happening in the world of Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Joining me this week is my co-host, Mary Clarkson. Mary is a local attorney, real estate agent, and for our purposes, most importantly, the owner of La Olivier Restaurant in Montrose. Mary, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining me once again on the show. It's nice to have you. Let's start with the news of the week. We have several th- topics to cover. Last week, I published a list of 21 new restaurants that are going to open in Houston over the course of the summer, and it doesn't even include things that like just opened, you know, the FM burgers of the world, the FM kitchens of the world, or Balls Out Burger or anything like that. It's it's things that have yet to open. You've looked over the list. Yes, show prep. Very good. Yes, I have. Nod and smile. Thank you. <laughs> Do you? What caught? What struck your fancy? What What are you intrigued by that's going to open up in Houston this summer? Well, I mean, this one's going to hit close to home for me since I own a French restaurant, but Abuzi. Yeah, I thought that might be your answer. Sean Vereen, he was the longtime general manager of Brasserie 19, certainly still a society hotspot in Houston, a place where a lot of decadent eating and drinking goes on. Off on his own, he's taken the space that used to be 60 Degrees Mastercrafted on Westheimer, and he's turned it into what I can only describe as a champagne-fueled restaurant. He named it after a town in Champagne, and it's going to have what he promises will be the most extensive, best-priced champagne list in Houston. What about Abuzi has you excited specifically? <laughs> the champagne list, and I'm I'm really hopeful that... Um, for those of y'all that have been to B19 before, that he keeps the same pricing uh, that he kept at B19, which is low markups. It's going to encourage people to drink more. Um, we have 75 champagnes and sparkling wines on our list at Le Olivier, but 150. I mean, I I don't think anybody in town has uh, the depth of that kind of list. And the location's great in River Oaks. I think he's going to be able to pull a lot of the B19 people. There's the patio element that B19 has. So I'm excited for him. He worked hard for this concept. He knows all the regulars. I think think he's going to be a big draw for the River Oaks Upper Kirby set. Yeah. Do you think this will pull some of those CNBC types back east? Because it seems to me like they've been spending a lot of time at Steak 48, La Colonial, and maybe more recently, Yawacha. That's true. You know, Galleria area is always going to be a big draw just because it's, you know, international. We have so many international travelers that come to the city. Um, so I think anything in the Galleria area does well. But, you know, I think Steak, I think steak 48 and La Colonial and um, the restaurants in, in that area, you know, have kind of had a good run. And not that they can't continue to have a good run, but people are always looking for what's new and, and what's next. I know some friends of mine that are regulars at B19 are literally going over to Abuzi to pick out their tables that are going to be their regular tables. So if that's any indication of what's to come, it's going to be jam-packed. You know, one of the ones that I really want to talk about is Oxbow 7, Brian Caswell's new restaurant that's going to open next month in the La Meridian Hotel downtown. Obviously, Brian and his wife Jennifer came on the show a few weeks ago to talk about Oxbow 7 and Hogbirds, its rooftop bar that's going to be the sister concept. I like the idea that Brian is, who's who's worked for Jean George, he's worked all over the world, is like getting back into a chef-driven concept for the first time since Stella Sola, with what he calls elevated Bayou cuisine. So, basically, Texas, Louisiana, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Gulf Coast, from the shoreline to 100 miles in. I don't know exactly what the dishes are going to be like, but I just he sounds so energized and so excited about it. And downtown is so hot right now. I just think this is going to be one of those restaurants people are really going to be talking about. I'm excited for Brian. I mean, I fell in love with his food when he was at Hotel Icon and John George. There was a light fish that he cooked there and an Asian, kind of an Asian light sauce, that broth that was 
unbelievable. And that kind of opened my eyes to what seafood could really be when I was much younger. But, you know, he's a great chef. I'm excited to see what he's going to do next. And yeah, downtown is downtown has more energy than I've ever seen it. I was there this weekend going to some of the bars, you know, Pastry Wars, Tongue Cut Sparrow. I think there's a lot of young people that are willing to go downtown for both dining uh, and drinking. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, like Uber and Lyft and these ride sharing services make it easier. You don't have to worry about parking. You don't have to pay a lot of money. You don't have to worry about how you're going to get home. It's just click of a button. Car shows up two minutes later. You hit the road. You're gone. Now, I did have an an Uber driver reading her text messages while she was driving me home Saturday (laughs) night. That's terrifying. But, you know, certainly the convenience factor and the price is good. So this is great. Eight bucks to get on town from most areas inside the loop. Yeah. It's cheaper than parking. Uh, and the one other, the one other locally owned restaurant I want to talk about is Theodore Rex. Justin used new restaurant that's going to take over the space that was previously Oxheart. Justin has been very tight lipped about what kind of food he's going to serve. Uh, his chef de cuisine, Jason White, is going to have a pop up for the next couple of Tuesdays at Eight Row Flint in the Heights, serving a grilled chicken dish that, when I inquired, was I was told not not really that similar to what they're going to be serving at, at T-Rex, but just he's about to get back in the game in a major way. You know, we got a better luck tomorrow is a is a kind of slim down version of his food for a smaller kitchen. But I'm just I'm ready to have, you know, I was a huge Oxheart fan and I'm just ready for Justin to be back cooking full time. I'm excited for Justin to be cooking in a restaurant environment. Um to see what he has next. I know he's doing the food for BLT, but I can't wait to see what's next for him in a restaurant yeah, uh, and, setting. And we don't know what a a la carte menu looks like from him. That's, I mean, that's the big thing, right? There's no more chef's counter, no more tasting menu. You know, I mean, I, I sort of poked him. I was like, steak? Or is there going to be a steak? And he just kind of <laughs> smiled and shrugged his shoulders at me. So, I, you know, I don't think we yet know what his plans are, but I mean, he's a James Beard Award winner, one of the most famous chefs in Houston right now. Like, whatever he does is definitely worth getting excited about. Absolutely. And then there's a bunch of stuff coming from out of town, too. Houston continues to be a city that attracts interesting concepts from out of town. Maybe none more so than Roca Accor. This is a steak and sushi restaurant with locations in Arizona, Chicago, and San Francisco. It's gotten good reviews in those other cities, uh, all of which have pretty competitive restaurant markets. It's a very stylish-looking place. Now, typically in Houston, we go we go for out for steak or out for sushi. We don't typically go to both. Mary, do you think that this restaurant is going to pull people out of River Oaks District to Wesleyan in West Alabama? You know, it's close enough, sure. I think it can pull people... Uh, nearby. It's going to depend what the menu offering is and what the pricing structure is. Sushi in general is a very popular concept. So are steakhouses. Um, If they've got, you know, a good local hiring base, you know, um, with their front of house staff, I think they should be able to pull people. Um, It it seems like that's a concept that will work. I'm usually more of a sushi or a steak person, not usually both, but you know, anything, anything here could go. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to a little more uh, something that's a little more contemporary, somewhere you can go eat right now. John Sheely is back. John had Mockingbird Bistro in the River Oaks area, kind of on the border of Montrose and River Oaks for almost twenty years, and then he had Osteria Mazzantini, which was critically acclaimed, but but never quite caught on the way that he wanted it to. He has taken over Lowbrow, which is right in the heart of Montrose steps from the Manil and it's basically it's been it's been operated by the Creek group for a couple of years it's definitely been more bar than restaurant that's going to change when he rolls out a new menu at the beginning of July but I mean Mary just real simply like how great is it to have John Sheely back in our lives John Sheely is amazing Mockingbird was a favorite of mine especially for Happy Hour that bar he had a great staff and great presence there um, I'm really excited that he's kind of sticking in the same neighborhood. This is right by the Manil. So, you know, Montrose, just a few minutes away from Mockingbird, where Mockingbird used to be. And I think a lot of people miss Mockingbird. So, 
you know, if he keeps it casual, he's going to draw a lot of people. I think that's the direction of dining, especially in this neighborhood. And Lowbrow already has a good base. So if he can build on that and bring some of his, you know, style of cooking back to Lowbrow um, with his Mockingbird influence, I think it'll do great, especially brunch, patio dining. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to be excited to be able to dine with him again. Yeah, I I could tell that the news about his return has spread because when I drove past Lowbrow on Sunday, there was a valet out front and there were Porsches and Cadillacs in the parking lot. I think that's pretty safe to say that's the first time either of those have ever been in the Lowbrow lot. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is great to have John back. He, he told me that he's going to lighten up the menu, cut some of the fried stuff, make it more of a neighborhood restaurant, less of a bar. That those changes happen in July, but but if you if you were a Mockingbird fan and you miss John Sheely, you can see him there right now. Up next, ah uh, yes, the Impossible Burger. The Impossible Burger has come to Houston. This is a <laughs> what I what I say is anytime we have a food trend that started on either one of the coasts that makes its Texas debut, that's the perfect one of the perfect culture map stories. The Impossible Burger is no exception. This is a, it's a plant burger. It's a, it's a patty made from plant products like uh, wheat and potato and coconut oil that looks like ground beef and bleeds like a medium-rare hamburger thanks to a, a protein called heme that, that's made out of vegetables. Uh, David Chang has this at the Momofuku restaurants in New York. It is at Umami Burger, a California-based better burger chain. And now it has come to Houston courtesy of Chris Shepard. It's on the lunch menu at Underbelly and available from 3 p.m. to 1 a.m. seven days a week at Haymerchant. The interesting thing about the Impossible Burger is that they are not marketing it as a vegan product. And, and at Haymerchant, it's covered in cheese. So it's, it's inherently not served. It's not intended for vegans. They want meat eaters to choose to eat this burger because it's produced more sustainably with less resources than beef and out of a recognition that it's a little better for you than beef. It doesn't have any cholesterol. Mary, do you want to eat the Impossible Burger? I don't. Um, I just, you know, when I want a burger, I want a burger. Um, I'm not going to lie here. I will try it. And I think there are plenty of people who will eat a burger like this, even though it's not technically vegan. But, you know, I don't eat burgers every week, probably once, maybe twice a month. But I will try it to be able to give feedback about it. But that's just not something that I'm going to crave. Yeah. It's priced at $18. A regular Ooh. a regular cease and desist burger at Hay Merchant is 12 I mean, at that price, is this anything more than a novelty? <laughs> it might be sustainably farmed, but not sustainably priced. Um, yeah, and and to their credit, Impossible Foods, the company that makes this, is gonna is working to build a new factory in Oakland, California, that's gonna dramatically decrease the cost of this stuff. But for right now, it just it feels like a novelty to me. People love novelties. Plenty of people are gonna come and try this as an alternative, and I'm sure it'll do great. It's just not something that. Sounds particularly juicy to me. Yeah, I tried it. It looks and smells like ground beef. I mean, they've, they've done a good job creating this thing. I thought the texture was a little off, and I, I that's such a key component for me. It needs to feel like ground beef in addition to tasting and smelling like it to, to really capture the experience. I, I think if you tried these side by side, most people would have no difficulty figuring out which was which. Sure, and they're probably not trying to 100% fool you, but um, I think it's got to be able to have all of those things, both texture and taste and flavor and all of that to really succeed if it wants to be a replacement. Well, and this company has raised almost $200 million from companies like Google and UBS and individuals like Bill Gates. So there's a whole program of impossible foods that are coming. They want to do steak. They want to do chicken. They want to do seafood. All in the recognition that the, the world's population is increasing. Raising animals is very resource intensive. And that, you know, someday there's just not going to be enough land, water, grass to feed all the animals, to feed all the people who want to eat meat. So this is 
ostensibly it's the future of food. And so for people who are interested in what that might taste like 20, 30, 50 years down the road, this is your first kind of glimpse at what that could be like. I'd rather just do vegetables at Uchi, for example, and do a vegetarian tasting. But, you know, <laughs> plenty of people are going to want this. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, a, it's an acknowledgement. It's, it's not really for vegans who don't like the taste of meat will not like the taste of this patty. Right? <laughs> this is for meat eaters who are conscious about these environmental concerns. It's for vegetarians who miss the taste of meat. You know, and it certainly, once again, it puts Chris Shepard on the forefront of uh, a cutting edge aspect of the food scene. And, and really, you know, there's probably no chef in Houston who's more qualified to participate in something like that. And then finally, speaking of culture map articles and lists, uh, my colleague Marcy DeLuna has rounded up some creative ice cream flavors uh, for people to try. None more exciting to me personally than the uh, Dolce Neve Cultivare collaboration that features uh, Mexican marigold, um, Mexican marigold blackberries, a cherry-based aperitif, and black peppercorns. Uh, the marigold, if you've been to Dolce Neve, which is on North Main in the same shopping center as Morning Star, and that was formerly home to Foreign Correspondence, uh, the marigold gives it like a licorice-type anise flavor that I find extremely addictive. And of course, Dolce Neve come here, has come here from Austin and we've talked about it on the show before. If it's not the best gelato in Houston, it is very, very close. And it's a place that I've been spending way too much time at recently. <laughs> well, I haven't been to Dolce Neve with you, but I have been and I'm excited about this collaboration. I love Cultivare. It's one of my favorite restaurants. Um, I would love to try the black peppercorns and the Mexican marigold for sure. And this is uh, this is the first of what what is expected to be several collaborations. Dolce Neve in Austin has worked with a number of restaurants. They're starting out with Cultivare, but expect to see more unique flavors like this from them. Uh, one ice cream shop that didn't make the list is Lee's Creamery, which is available at Petite Sweets. I was there over the weekend with my family. They're they're very on trend, right? They have a whole bunch of different ice creams with crushed up cookies in them. They have a unicorn flavor with... Uh, I, I want the unicorn flavor. Yes, you, of course you do. <laughs> with uh, sprinkles and, and culinary uh, sparkles in it. It's, you know, that's a, that's a very rich, very full flavored ice cream. And another place that, you know, trying to beat the heat this summer, that's a, that's a great way to uh, stay cool. All right. We will be right back with uh, the restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? For our Restaurant of the Week segment, I'd like to talk about Balls Out Burger. This is the new arrival in the Heights from Ian Tucker, a native Irishman who has three very successful bars and restaurants in Dublin. Moved to America because he fell in love with a woman from Houston and they got married and now they live here. Balls Out Burger is an interesting concept because... In a time when most burger joints, Hubcap Grill, Hubcap Grill, Bernie's Burger Bus, Hop Dotty, what have you, are known for their different patty options, their different toppings, their wide variety of choices, Balls Out Burger doesn't do any of that, right? One patty, beef, five ounces made from 44 Farms beef, topped with lettuce, tomato, pickles, onions, jalapenos, 50 cents extra, cheese is 50 cents extra. And that's it. I called it in an article on Culture Map the no bullshit burger. I don't know if producer Michael's going to have to bleep that out or not, but because there's no there's no chili, there's no bacon, there's no kimchi, there's no blue cheese, uh, even the milkshakes they only have chocolate and vanilla. They don't even have strawberry. So, Mary, you've eaten it, balls out burger. What did you think of this very focused, very tight burger concept. I think simplicity should be rewarded. You know, they're using slow dough bread. They're serving St. Arnold's beer. Their burger's super simple. They're using 44 Farms meat. Uh, this is a burger I want to eat, and it's in a great location. It's in the middle of the Heights on she off of Shepherd or Durham. Yeah, it's on Durham. They, 
one of their representatives told me that 70,000 cars pass by that location every day. I mean, the traffic count's huge for that. My only kind of criticism of the concept is that the interior is very small and most of the seating's outside. So on a day like yesterday, when it poured down rain for a little bit and then was really muggy and hot and humid, um, you're kind of limited on your seating options. But the food is great. The burger's simple. This is my kind of burger. Um, I'm liking what they're doing. They're serving only Texas wines and Texas beers. And... You know, this is gonna this is gonna do really well. I mean, the only problem with this method is that when you don't cook and season the burger perfectly every time, it can go really wrong. Sure. I went there Saturday night after the St. Arnold anniversary party. I needed a little bit of sustenance, and it was late-ish. It was call it nine fifteen, nine thirty. They closed at eleven, and my burger was overcooked and under seasoned. And there's, again, there's no bullshit to cover the problems with a burger that, that isn't prepared well. So, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the concept. And, and by the way, they, they toast the buns in rendered beef fat. So if you, you. if you notice that, that the bun was exceptionally delicious, that's why. But everything has to be on point and they've got to be super focused and, and, so they've only been open for a little more than a week, so I'm not writing it off, but I've seen a lot of mixed reactions to it on social media, and I think some of that is because they're not consistent yet. Sure, and I mean, I as a general rule of thumb, I don't punish restaurants for how their food's coming out. Probably, I'd like to wait six weeks before I really give a firm judgment on a restaurant, whether you know, I like it or I don't because inconsistencies in the kitchen and stuff and everything else, every restaurant deserves a chance to kind of shake that out. And so, yeah, I hope that they will, you know, make, make consistency is the most important part of dining in Houston. I think the food's got to be good every time, not just great sometimes and mediocre other times. So if they, if they work out those kinks, they're going to do very well in Houston. Right. I mean, they have this great patio, they have games on it. They have this environmentally friendly ethos, only canned sodas, only canned beer. You know, they don't give you straws unless you ask for them. All these all these little things that that should make balls out really compelling, but it's gotta be perfect. And and then the other thing is the name is a bit of a turnoff for some people. <laughs> uh, apparently that phrase has its etymology in railroad conducting, that that, that was a, a phrase that implied going full throttle. And it has a different connotation in Ireland than it does in America, where, frankly, it sounds a little bit like uh, rock out with your thing out. <laughs> it's the radio version of that phrase. But so people, so people in Houston hear it differently than people in Dublin would. But it is a little bit of a turnoff for people. I don't know. How do you, how do you, how do you feel about I the name? I think people are way too politically correct these days, okay? It's in the Heights. A lot of the Heights spots are hipster hot spots. I mean, I'm just going to tell it like it is. So I think the young 20, 30-somethings aren't going to be deterred by the name of this concept. I mean, this is a city that used to have a restaurant named Beavers, so or still does have a restaurant named Beavers, you know? Um, and, and a restaurant named BRC that stood for Big Red Cock. So, I mean, this It had a giant rooster statue out front, of course. What else would you call it? I mean, Houston isn't going to be deterred by the name of a restaurant if the food's good. Now, if the food's not good, that's a different matter, but the name doesn't bother me. All right. So speaking of hipster hotspots in the Heights, I do want to briefly just talk about Better Luck Tomorrow. We talked about Theodore Rex at the top of the show, Justin Yu's new restaurant. Better Luck Tomorrow is the the bar. It's it's very explicitly a bar that he opened with Bobby Hugel. What do you think of BLT? Okay. I have several thoughts. I think that the location's great. The design is beautiful. Um, there's a lot of neon lighting and kind of unusual shaped uh, diagonal designs behind the bar. It's a beautiful spot. It's small on the inside. Um, it's meant more for patio dining. I've had great cocktails here. Uh, I saw Bobby the first night that I, I went there and he was very gracious with me and speaking to me and letting me know what to get, what was his favorite cocktail. So that was nice. Um, it's brand new. It's still relatively brand new. Uh, service on the weekends like slows to a halt. Um, it took me 15, 20 minutes to order a second bottle of wine with my friends on a second visit. And um, we already had our glassware and everything else. So I think it's a tiny, tiny bar. So 
you know, you will be three, four deep at the bar. It reminds me of Anvil back in the day when you could hardly even walk inside. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's, you know, it's intended to be a bar. It, it's, a, it's a bar with food. It's not a restaurant with cocktails. You have to go up to the counter to order every time you want another bottle of wine, every time you want another drink, every time you want something else from Justin's menu. But as you said, it looks great. It feels good. It's, it's a lot less. It's a lot more fun. It doesn't feel quite as serious to me as Anvil always has. And the food's pretty good. I mean, you know, Justin and, and Matt Boson, the, the executive chef, have put together a, a menu that's got some veggies. It's got some street food. It's got uh, a patty melt that they call the party melt. It's got a Chinese-style scallion pancake that's sort of topped and looks like a pizza. They call it the not a pizza. So it is. It's just, it's just a little more fun. Probably still finding it sea legs a little bit. But, you know, Kate Crater of Bloomberg called it the the restaurant she most wants to try in the entire country. I think that has to do with Bobby and Justin's reputation, but certainly it's finding an audience. I think of this as a bar with a bar menu, bar food. I do not think of this place as a restaurant at all. I mean, they do have some substantial offerings, but I had bean soup one night. That was really good. I had the Nada pizza, which was a more anchovy than I would like, but other people really liked it in my group. And, you know, it's it's a bar with bar food. I don't think he wants to be cornered into a category of restaurant and bar. Um, but it's nice that it has food options. There's so many apartments across the street that have uh, been newly built. And so he literally has an audience of hundreds of people across the street that will most likely use this for both food and beverages. But the cocktails are great. The bartenders there are, are top, top, top. So... I'm looking forward to trying this place out more as the summer goes on and maybe the crowds are a little less. All right. Mary Clarkson, thank you very much. We can follow Olivier uh, on the web at LaOlivierHouston.com and on Instagram at LaOlivierHouston. That's where you get both uh, a glimpse of the restaurant specials, what Chef Olivier is working on, and also when Mary's uh, had a cocktail or two on the Instagram stories, a a look inside her personal life and where she's hanging out. Yes, Eric. Thank you so much for having me today. If y'all are around June 28th, we're doing the Prisoner Wine Company Wine Dinner. Um, We're really excited for this. So hope to see you soon. All right. And I will be right back with Ryan Soroka from 8th Wonder Brewing. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I am so pleased that What's Eric Eating has finally signed its first sponsor, 8th Wonder Brewery. Certainly one of my favorite local brewers. Eighth Wonder has really transformed Houston's craft beer scene with their brewery in Edo that is as much a place to hang out and drink beer as it is a place where beer is made. It's a great spot before Dynamo Games and Astros Games. It's easy to walk to either stadium. And they have a lineup of really great, easy-drinking beers that are some of my favorites. Uh, Certainly they're known for the Dome Foam inspired by their namesake, the eighth wonder of the world, the Astrodome. They're known for rocket fuel, the Vietnamese coffee porter, but it's a brewery that's always innovating. They have the new IP8, a double IPA that you can get in cans at your favorite place to buy beer. And the Weiss Timer, a Hefeweizen, always great to drink. And I'm just so pleased that Eighth Wonder has come on as my first sponsor because it's the beer that I like to drink when I'm out and about. So I hope you will too. Thanks, Eighth Wonder. Up next, the interview of the week. For our interview of the week segment, we're going a little bit out of bounds. Typically, we have chefs and restaurateurs. This is our first brewer, Ryan Soroka of Eighth Wonder Brewing. And conveniently, this interview is also sponsored by Eighth Wonder Brewery, conveniently located in East downtown, walking distance from Dynamo Stadium and Minute Maid Park, perfect for pregame festivities and, depending on the time of the game, also postgame festivities. Ryan Soroka, welcome to What's Eric Eating. Hey, Eric. Thanks. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for making a financial commitment to the show. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Um, let's kind of start at the beginning. You, I first met you when you were part of the Etsy Boys Food truck, 
you have moved into the, the truck is still there. It still serves at the brewery, but, but certainly the brewery is your primary focus. How did you decide to open a brewery and kind of move from food to beer? Sure. Um, and it's true. You've been an early supporter of us. I remember the, the old Eatsy Boys days with the trailer in Montrose on Westheimer, you know, right next to Agora. Friendly face. I remember seeing you. So definitely a lot of thanks for supporting us along the way. I remember when you started serving ice cream at the Boneyard and I picked my parents up from the airport that afternoon and we went. I was like, before I take you home, we got to get ice cream. So I've been a, I'm an old school Eatsy Boys fan. Seems like a lifetime away. But um, yeah, so, you know, the original plan was always a brewery. Um, and I went to grad school at the University of Houston. I was at the Hilton College getting a master's in hotel and restaurant management. And I was also at the Bauer College getting an MBA. And in lieu of a professional paper, I requested an exemption to do a business plan for, at the time, was a brew pub, which basically is a restaurant brewery combination. And, you know, I was writing this plan in 09, 2010. And at the times, the laws just didn't seem very favorable, in my opinion, to do that brew pub model. So really, it was at that point that we kind of split the brewery from the restaurant and we pursued two different business plans. Um, you know, they're all happening on paper at the same time, but it took about two months to get Eatsy Boys up and running. And it took about two years to get Eighth Wonder up and running. And that's really just a a byproduct of scale and scope of the projects. You know, my two partners and I, Alex and Matt, we bootstrapped Eatsy Boys together. Uh, and we, you know, just put some money that we had and, and bought a truck and we're up and running. And uh, the brewery was a much larger project. We raised capital. We have a handful of investors. And, you know, it took a while to get that business up and running. But they were really uh, conceived at the same time. And we just kind of split the food from the beer in a manner that made a little bit more sense to play within the uh, the framework of the laws. Well, and and certainly your investors must be very pleased. Um, it the, seems like, is it fair to say that the brewery has exceeded your expectations, at least in terms of how quickly you've been able to grow the business? Very much so. Our investors, we have a great group, super patient, super awesome and supportive group of people. Um, we literally met our 10-year projections in year three so they're they're pretty pleased and um, they're patient and they know that this business requires a lot of reinvestment a lot of capital up front and it's not a get rich quick scheme it's a long road with a lot of hard work it's very rewarding and we love every moment moment of it but um you know there's a lot of there are a lot of hurdles along the way i'm sure and we take each day as they come right and one of the one of the primary places that you've reinvested in the business is just growing the physical plant, right? You have you have a warehouse in Edo. You had a, a little piece of it when you first started. Now you have the whole thing. Now you have the backyard, Wonderland. What's What role has that played in kind of growing the business? How important is having the brewery as a place where people can hang out and not just where you make and distribute the beer? Sure. You know, there's not a uh, right or wrong business model. Um, in our opinion, we wanted to have a very prominent wholesale operation, but we also wanted to supplement that with a very prominent on-site tap room. And for us, the way we look at it is the tap room is kind of the face of our business and it's a chance for folks to come to the brewery, try beers fresh from the source, uh, maybe try some new R&D beers, some experimental beers, give us some feedback on them. And ultimately, they'll be able to go around town and you know, support local bars and restaurants, uh, go to the grocery stores or beer stores and get Eighth Wonder there. So it's almost like an on-site tasting panel, an R&D lab where we get direct feedback from the consumer. Hey, we like this. Hey, this is okay. Hey, you should work on that. And we take all of it to heart and it's really an important part and process of making beer. So are there a couple of beers, like for example, you have the IP8 and the Vice Timer that both uh, have recently hit shelves. Were those started as specials at the brewery? Yes. And, you know, every and any beer we've ever done really starts on our pilot system, which brews 15 gallons at a time. Our commercial system does a minimum of 620 gallons up to 1,800. Um, so any and all recipes start on that pilot system. You know, we'll put it up in the tap room, and depending on the feedback we get, we'll either leave it as is untouched or maybe minor tweaks, or maybe we go all the way back to the drawing board and just start over. 
But ultimately, we take that feedback. Once we've gotten it to a point that we feel confident in, we will scale it up, put it on the commercial system, and release it around town. So at this point, what's the split between cans versus draft? Where where are you in that? Yeah, when we started, we were 100% draft only. Um, we didn't start canning our beer. Excuse me. We opened up in 2013, and we didn't start canning our beer till 15. Uh, really quickly and... Now, currently, our split is about 65% cans, and the the remainder is in, in draft. So does that have to do with the, the, the market for draft, for, for taps, is very competitive? There's, there's new beers all the time, but new breweries opening all the time, but relatively few local breweries are canning at this point. I think that's a very fair assessment. Um, a lot of great new breweries popping online you know when we opened we were the number six brewery in houston greater houston that is i think the most recent count has us at like 40 something low 40s and and more all the time and yeah there's at least a dozen if not you know a dozen and a half or more opening soon um so you're right the the landscape has gotten far more competitive uh tap space is limited and it's not uncommon for restaurants and bars to do rotating taps and kind of just cycle in new beers new breweries um not to mention the grocery stores and the chain stores, they buy volume. You know, they, they don't just buy a keg here or there. They'll buy cases upon cases, which is significantly more uh, than, you know, a single keg. Obviously, the, the local beer market is very competitive. It's, it's growing, but it's also, I think it's, it can be a little bit overwhelming as a consumer. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have the like, mental bandwidth to keep track of the difference between, say, Holler and Sigma and Platypus and Eighth Wonder and Under the Radar and Eureka Heights. What are you doing to sort of stand out and make sure that you still have people who are excited about your beer? You know, all those breweries you mentioned, visited them all. They are great people with great beers and they're a welcomed addition to the community. Um, Yeah, that's a constant question we ask ourselves every day. How do we stay relevant? How do we stay at the forefront of consumers' minds? And for us, it's kind of a, a formula where it's got to have good beer, got to have a strong brand. And kind of the third component to that is events. We like to host a lot of events on site and we like, like to uh, do events off site at different bars and restaurants and stores. So that's kind of our three things, you know, beers always first, got to have fresh, tasty, quality beer. Then, you know, strong brand and we impart our personality. We definitely pay tribute to Houston and Texas and, and the, the rich history that we have here. And again, events, events, events. Right. And you, I mean, more, I mean, you've, you do a few culinary events over the course of the year. I mean, I was there for a, a taco competition a few months back, but concerts seem to be the main thing. Yeah, we love music. Um, you know, we like to think that beer and sports and beer and music go hand in hand. Of course, beer and food do too. Um, so we, you know, we host uh, live music every Thursday and Friday night. No cover at Eighth Wonder, uh, 7 p.m. start time. That's part of our eight track series. And it's, you know, we showcase local and touring acts at the brewery. Uh, then we like to do kind of once a month, maybe a larger scale event uh, on site as well. And then really about once a quarter, we kind of do these, uh, these blowout events that are very large and a lot of fun and, you know, require a lot more investment in infrastructure. But it's a way to kind of showcase what we like to do and, and really feature the brewery and, and Wonder World, our outdoor beer garden. So for those quarterly events, I mean, how many people show up to those? If, you know, we do 1,000, 1,500 plus for sure. You know, and I think, I, I think it's catching on, right? I mean, St. Arnold just celebrated their 23rd anniversary with an all-day. Cheers to St. Arnold. We, uh, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them and uh, their guidance and support along the way. So we're, we're very happy for them. Oh no, and and certainly, and I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage these these other new breweries. I mean, I, I'm I'm you know, trying to drink their beer, you know, form my own opinions. I've visited a number of them, but it is hard to stand out, and it and it certainly feels like, and and probably part of this is because you got to the market a little earlier, and I know you personally, but it, it does seem like Eighth Wonder, and even in a crowded field, is is more at the like closer to the St. Arnold level, and and you know, there's there's a brewery in Midtown that's literally called Under the Radar. You're not flying. You're not flying under anybody's radar at this point. You know, we did for a little while, um, but uh, thank you for the kind words, and we like to believe that maybe we're 
you know, we've grown quite a bit and hopefully the market is aware of Eighth Wonder and we want to continue to grow that and, and you know, tap into new markets. Well, speaking of new markets, I think you've announced that San Antonio is next. We are entering the San Antonio market June 22nd. We're very excited. Um, San Antonio is a really cool town and it's a great beer scene that I think is ready for more beer and new beer. And uh, we, we look forward to to that city and, and kind of the upcoming events and, and visiting accounts and interacting with, with customers. Uh, we're, we're really excited about that. Now, I assume you've already been out there a little bit. What's the, what's your sense of kind of where that market is and, and what's your opportunity like there? You know, there's already some established breweries there, Freetail uh, being kind of the, the, I guess the, the resident hometown. Yeah. Uh, kind of the St. Arnold of right. San Antonio. You know, you got Alamo brewing as well. Uh, both Freetail and Alamo, great people and, and brewing some nice beer. Um, I think there's some smaller breweries kind of popping up left and right in San Antonio. And it just shows you that, you know, there's room for, for new entrants. And I think the people are excited about more local beer, more Texas beer, and really just more American craft beer. So you're finding so far that you, you're, there are bars and restaurants that are excited about carrying you guys. People have been very receptive. Um, we're going to launch in about 20 accounts, just a small kind of introduction to the city. And then, uh, in time, we're going to roll out to more accounts and hopefully, fingers crossed, get into the supermarkets over there. We're already approved here in the greater Houston area, but each city, each territory kind of requires a starting over process, if you will. And then are you are you working? I know you've worked with Silver Eagle here in the Houston area. Are you working with them in San Antonio or how does that work? Yes, that's correct. So uh, Silver Eagle distributes our product in Harris County, Fort Bend and Montgomery counties, and they'll be taking us to the greater San Antonio market as well. Very good. And then tell me a little bit about, I mean, what else does the future hold? Do you see Austin and Dallas on the radar? Or are you going to kind of start in San Antonio and see where you're at? We're all about calculated baby steps and, you know, kind of just one foot in front of the other. We definitely want to be in Dallas. We definitely want to be in Austin. Uh, You know, we're just going to take each new territory as they come. And as, you know, the way we look at it is, we don't want to overextend ourselves and we don't want to overcommit to areas. If until there's a, uh, a surplus of inventory, then we're not going, we're not forcing into another market, right? We, we are, we're fortunate that our product moves pretty fast. People are drinking it at a, at a rapid rate. And again, unless there's a surplus of inventory, then we're not really going to expand a new markets. This, you know, within the last six months, we just added, five new tanks it significantly upped our capacity as such we have some surplus and we are timing it appropriately so we are entering the san antonio market in a week or two and shortly thereafter we'll actually be in southeast texas and we'll play that by ear for the next you know few quarters and if we see that there's still a surplus of inventory then we can discuss whether we want to enter some new markets then what is i mean is, is this like, is it proprietary? I mean, what are you producing in terms of annual barrels? And, sure. and what's your kind of target for the next couple of years? Yeah. So to put things in perspective, our first year we did just under a thousand barrels. And this most recent year we did right around 10,000 barrels of beer. Uh, we've seen some significant growth and we're humbled and, and proud and excited about it. Um, we project around 15,000 barrels this year. And you know, our brew house can probably take us to about 20, maybe 25,000 with some additional equipment to, to take us there. But again, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We're not in this, uh, just flood the market with our beer, you know, force it down people's throat. That's not how we do this. We, it's very calculated, organic growth. And then in terms of styles of beer, right? Obviously you have the, the Hefeweizen, the Weiss timer that you just introduced. You have the IPA, the double IPA. Where do you decide, like, what what's what's an eighth wonder beer versus what's not an eighth wonder beer? Like, so, you know, th- I don't feel like there's ever going to be like a true sour from eighth wonder. I don't feel like that's well. We do have haterade, right? And, you and have a goza. That's, that's our goza, goza, which is a kettle sour. And as a matter of fact, we're investing in some infrastructure to be able to do that more readily available year round and introduce some other kettle sours. But as you mentioned, we are currently exploring some possible uh, off-site 
warehouses to expand production capabilities and our souring capabilities. So, I mean, when you look at something like those cloudy IPAs that are kind of sweeping the, that are super trendy with all the beer nerds, is that, do you look at that and think, I want to put my spin on that? Or do you look at that and think, that's not really what we do? You know, it's hard to gauge that. Sometimes these trends, you catch them ahead of time and you can kind of hit the market ahead of the curve. Other times, you know, maybe the trend's in full swing and by the time you enter it, it's almost old news or, you know, maybe like, why are we even trying this if some other people have planted their flag in here? Um, really, the way we determine what we want to release, it's, it's multifaceted, but ultimately, um, we look at the market, we look at the current portfolio of beers and, you know, what's out there. If there's you know, 15 breweries doing the same style, it might be a lost cause at this point in time to also do our version of that style. It just might get lost in the sauce, right? Uh, so we kind of see what's out there and, and what's available and where's something that we can kind of plant a flag and kind of, hey, look at this style. It's not really represented. Hey, why don't you try this beer? It's uh, It almost went extinct, but it's now seeing a resurgence. Um, and don't get me wrong, those Northeast IPAs are delicious and they're amazing. And we've played around with some kind of small batch versions of them. Uh, we're going to do our own twist on a Northeast IPA. It's called a Dirty Coast IPA. But uh, we'll uh, we'll release details about that shortly, maybe in our, in our next conversation. Uh, yeah, I should, I should point out this is the eighth episode of What's Eric eating? So, so no more appropriate time to have eighth wonder. Uh, what else is kind of on the horizon for you? I mean, do you do you aspire to get back into the restaurant business in a more formal way? Never going to rule that out. Uh, we love the food and beverage industry. You know, that's why we're in this industry. We had a few trucks and we had a cafe, and honestly, we saw a lot of growth occurring in, in the brewery side of things. And our lease was coming up, and there weren't some favorable. Um, it wasn't it wasn't in our best interest to pursue and, and continue that lease. So we kind of scaled back the E.T. Boys operation. However, the food truck is running on all cylinders. It's cranking out a lot of tickets a week, high-quality food. It really pairs well with our beer, and it keeps people at eighth wonder, you know. Um, the truck is doing better than it's done in easily four years, and I'm not sure if you remember this or know this, Eric, but we were one of the first five gourmet quote-unquote chef-driven food trucks in the city and we're now officially the longest lasting one on the road yeah i mean i i had a friend text me this weekend said hey where can i where can i go eat at a food truck i have have friends in town they want to eat at a food truck and what i realized was all of my favorite food trucks bernie's burger bus the rice box good dog pie pizza have all gone brick and mortar yes and it seems like that movement has kind of come to a, if not a conclusion, at least it's, it's still kind of going in the suburbs, but as an interloop phenomenon, I think it's, it's safe to say it's kind of had its run. Well, I, I don't necessarily disagree. It, first and foremost, that industry, the, the, the restaurant industry is a tough biz. Try putting a restaurant on wheels and you've got an even more difficult situation. Um, you know, it's a grind, it's a hustle. You you never know what each day presents and I'm happy for our companions in the industry. They're all, you know, good friends of ours and they've all worked really hard and they've grown beyond their trucks and are now opening brick and mortar locations. Some of them opening multiple brick and mortar locations. Houston's a tough city with the food trucks, right? We're very weather, uh, erratic. It's super hot. It's super humid. It can downpour on you in a, in a second. Um, we're a very spread out city, so there's very few kind of high pedestrian areas where the trucks can congregate. And then not to mention, you know, no disrespect, but the regulations regarding the food trucks make it a very unfavorable environment to succeed in. Right. And and I'll, I'll say this so you don't have to, but it's very different in Austin, right? A, a truck can park at a bar in Austin and not move uh, except for once a year. And of course, in Houston, the, the food trucks have to go to a commissary once a day. Uh, to get inspected, to get water. So the regulations are, are difficult. And of course, you're, you're just limited. I mean, the, the amount of physical capacity, storage capacity, refrigeration capacity available on a truck makes it hard to sell a lot of food and really be profitable. And of course, you can't sell alcohol. So that's another, another you know, very important source of income for most restaurants that are denied to food trucks, all of which I think have conspired to to limit their growth. I mean, 
I don't know. What's the the last new food truck that I really got excited about was Cousins Maine Lobster, and of course they benefited from Shark Tank, Shark Tank, yeah. and and national branding, and frankly a damn good lobster roll, delicious lobster roll, and you know, yeah, and it's fourteen bucks, but you know, but worth it. I mean, but you know, no deal. It's it's not a deal compared to a restaurant, and and I think that was that was another one of those things that was sort of hard for people to get their head around that you had to overcome was, you know, I'm paying you know, $10 for a, a chicken poblano sausage. Like, you know, where's the break? Like you, you don't have a roof. Like where's the, you know, but you mentioned a good point. Where is the break us as food truck operators that we don't get the price breaking and economies of scale with larger restaurants that really have that buying power to, to get things, you know, we purchase things smaller scale. It's always fresh. Um, you know, oftentimes the, uh, the flip side of that is higher costs. And unfortunately those have to translate and trickle down. But but Matt Marcus is still very much involved with, oh, yeah. with Wonder, still a still a full partner. Oh yeah. And I mean Maddie's a guy with, you know, an incredible resume, worked at the Fat Duck in London, worked at Cyrus, a two Michelin star restaurant. Tony's here in Houston. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was overqualified to run a food truck. Um I mean, I don't want you to speak for him, but but it certainly seems like there's gotta be opportunities for him to be back at a restaurant someday. You know, we don't rule that out. And again, this is eighth wonder now, right? We have plans. We want to be a hundred year brewery. You know, we celebrated uh, Shipley Donuts 80th anniversary at, and we we hosted them at the brewery. And I was think looking back and kind of really mesmerized by 80 years they've been around. I hope we can be around for 80 years. I I hope Eighth Wonder is here for future generations, future future Houstonians. And with that being said, yeah, they're is likely hopefully going to be another iteration of the brewery, hopefully maybe with a restaurant inside of it, something a little bit more stable for Matt. Um, but I'll tell you right now, the food truck is doing better than it's ever done. The weekly sales numbers are very strong and it's back. It's great to see Matt back in the seat day to day with ETC boys. And he's now getting more and more involved on, on the brewery side of things. We've got plans to do kind of monthly beer dinners, both on site and off site. And him kind of taking the reins and maybe being that culinary liaison and, and working closely with the restaurant accounts, kind of chef to chef and how Eighth Wonder compare with their menu and how we can do fun pop-ups together. So we're really excited to have Matt back in the saddle. So let me just ask you kind of a big picture question. You know, we, we talked a little bit about how there's all these new breweries that have opened since you opened. There are more coming. At what point do you think we're going to reach peak beer? Like, is there... Are we are we there? Are we close to it, or or is there still room for new breweries to kind of pop up and make their mark? I really, honestly believe if you're making good beer and you're good people, there's room for you here. Um, I read somewhere that in order for Houston to reach Denver's per capita brewery count, we'd have to reach something like over 150 breweries in Houston to equal the per capita rate that Denver has now. That's crazy. That those are some crazy numbers, and I think it'd be cool if you know we had that many breweries here. Um, I'm just wondering, is everyone going to be a winner? You know, who who who's going to make it in that environment? It's it's great for the consumer. I think it's going to keep all of us brewers on our toes and making you know great beer, high quality beer, and being very innovative both in uh, product development as well as kind of marketing, branding, and events. But I do think there's room for growth. Um, there will be a tipping point. Is it going to be that kind of projected Denver per capita rate? That seems really high. Um, I don't know. I think only time will tell and what the market can bear. Right. I mean, it, it feels like certainly that the future of, that there might not be another St. Arnold, Carbock, Eighth Wonder, that it, it might be these smaller neighborhood breweries that, you know, maybe they brew 5,000 barrels a year, you know, maybe, you know, or maybe maybe even fewer than that. I think that the move, and we're seeing this all around the country, not just here in Houston or in Texas, but I'm not saying that just buy local to buy local, but that is there is a movement of truly kind of hyper-local breweries just serving their neighborhoods, serving their backyard, serving a few block radius. And I think we're going to see a lot of those popping up here. Um, you know, s- fewer barriers to entry, less capital required, but also kind of less upside too. But, um, you know, it's... I think there's a 
a size and a place and a style for multiple breweries around our city and state and the country. And we'll be seeing breweries of all sizes popping up. And don't don't count out these well-funded, kind of came-out-of-nowhere, overnight, super-large breweries that, that happen. That's not out of the realm at all. All right. Well, you know, I have to ask you the, the question that we ask every brewer, every independently-owned small brewery. Are there conditions under which, like, you would be open to being acquired by a company like uh, AB InBev? Put me on the spot, huh? Uh, so, you know, we started this brewery because we love this industry. We love being able to make something with our hands and sharing it with people and sharing our story. We didn't know about the end game of selling out. That was not, not in our horizon, not in our business plan, not, you know, we just want to make good beer and have fun and, and share it with people. Uh, as we kind of have grown in this industry, we're in our fourth and a half, four and a half year mark here, you know, there have been some shakeups in the industry and some big acquisitions to each of their own. I, I can say, you know, some people may have planned for that and that may have been their end goal. Um, I think I'd be lying to you or anyone would be if they said, absolutely not. I, I remember Brock saying, you know, of St. Arnold, yeah, I'll sell <laughs> Yeah, a billion for a billion dollars. dollars. Yeah. I mean, who's going to turn that down? Right. And right. I think for us is we want to run this brewery and we want to be a part of the Houston landscape and the Texas landscape for years and decades to come. Um, but again, let's remind everyone, this is not a hobby. I, I, I was a home brewer and that was my hobby. But when I turned my hobby into a business, I lost my hobby. We have investors. We have to pay people back. We're, we operate this. It's a business. We have fun. It's a passion business. And we want to grow and we want to get our beer to as many people as possible without sacrificing quality or freshness or anything of that. And, you know, Who's to say what the end game is? But ideally, if there was some sort of end game, hopefully you'd find the right partner that can kind of preserve your your culture and preserve your vision and really not sacrifice anything. But honestly, we don't have plans to to sell. We want to brew beer, and this is my future. I hope one day my son, eighteen years down the road, maybe he wants to take over the brewery, and that would be amazing if that was the case. You know, living the uh, the capitalist dream. Hey, cheers all right. To that. Ryan, before we let you go, uh, we started this last week. We're going to keep it rolling. The lightning round. Five quick questions. Just uh, say the first thing that pops into your head. Uh-oh. You ready? Let's do it. All right. What's the first uh, hospitality industry job that you ever had? I worked at Jason's Deli. In, in what capacity? I was a uh, delivery driver. Very nice. All right. What is the first concert you ever went to? I know this immediately. Uh, it was at the Summit. It was with uh, my late great friend Harris Whittles and my mom, and we went to see, no doubt, Foo Fighters. No, excuse me, no doubt, Goo Goo Dolls and Bush. And that was shortly, like probably a week or two after uh, Dave Matthews Band at the Woodlands. Wow, nineteen ninety five. So that's at the heart of like uh, the Gwen Stefani, uh, Gavin Rossdale. Totally, totally. <laughs> All right, um, the best new restaurant that you've tried recently. That's a great question. <laughs> Putting me on the spot. I will just say I went to Seaside Poke, uh, what, Friday? Uh, that's our new neighborhood poke spot. I really like Ono, too, but Seaside was very good, and I brought you some Pandan uh, Rice Krispie treats from Seaside that if you want to try. Yes, you're the first uh, What's Eric eating guest to bring food, so hopefully that becomes a new tradition. Uh, Seaside Poke located very steps from... Yeah, around the corner. steps from... Eighth Wonder Brewery, uh, right next to Chapman and Kirby in the East Village development. Um, all right, let me give this. Mm, eating on air, great radio. This is really good. Um, you should go have poke and pandan rice krispie treats there. All right. Uh, your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? This is going to be a real close call between Hakeem Olajuwon and Craig Biggio. It's kind of unfair. should make me pick one of those two. Um, I really resonated and connected with Craig Biggio. Um, played second base growing up. Uh, you know, lifelong Astros fan. But I mean, the dream, man. How can you know? You couldn't stop the dream. He brought two championships to us. Uh, but both Hall of Famers. I- I'm going neck and neck. How about Hakeem Biggio? <laughs> it's a good cop out answer. Very, very political <laughs> answer. Yeah. All right. Finally, what's your favorite taco in Houston? I can break this down into a few different subcategories, but I'll probably spare you all for this. Uh, if we're going breakfast tacos, I'm going to go 
what is now Texas Taco and Barbecue. If we're going lunch taco, I'm going Taco Tierra Caliente. Although I got to put an honorable mention nod, lunch tacos to Brothers. Yeah, you introduced me to Brothers. Yeah. The Edo, it's been in Edo so long it was before it was called Edo. Totally. But, uh, and the Carnegie Sada, right? That's it, man. Carnegie Sada uh, at, at Brothers. I do kind of barbacoa and lengua at Taco Tierra Caliente. And at ta- uh, Texas Tacos and Barbecue, I do El Chorizo Supreme. All right. Ryan Soroka, 8th Wonder Brewery. Thank you so much. We can find you on the web, 8th, that's number 8, thwonderbrew.com. On Instagram, 8th Wonder Brew. Thank you so much for uh, for coming and, and for sponsoring the show. Yes, thank you very much. Our pleasure. And, of course, you can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler, on Twitter at eSandler. Keep it locked on Culture Map for all the latest bar, restaurant news, all the running around that I do on your behalf. It's a, it's a tough job, but, but somehow I make it work. And, of course, uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, please leave a comment and a rating. But like Katie Nolan says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. I'll be back next week with Mike Sammons, the owner of Mongoose vs. Cobra. Awesome. 13 Celsius and Weights and Measures. Thanks so much for listening.